0: Welcome back to another episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. My name is Brendan Bennett, your co-host, and with me is your other co-host, David Dugan. David, what's going on? Uh, Not a lot. Happy to be here again in the
1: office studio. Uh, Excited about today's podcast. One of my favorite people on today. Last episode, who did we have last? We had Dawson. Dawson. Dawson was a great one. Fascinating young guy doing a lot of really cool stuff. So excited for that one to air, but yeah, uh, yes, today we have Megan and she's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with her and get her perspective on a ton of different things.
0: yeah how about how about the order of operations with that? we have a we have a borrower on one side and then we have the very next episode, the underwriter, the one who's you know seeing how much profit Dawson's making, approving his deals. so what a what a good flow we got going on on here. looking at his <laughs> bank statements. That's right <laughs> cool. Um, let's, let's bring her in.
1: Yeah, so I'll give Megan her introduction here. So at Fund That Flip, Megan runs the construction risk team as part of uh, the asset management branch of our company. So we'll talk about what that means and what exactly she does. She has a hand in the construction loans through the life of of a project uh, at Fund That Flip. Uh, She provides transparency for our stakeholders outside of FTF. She invests in some of her own projects in residential real estate here in the Cleveland area. She specifically utilizes the Burr strategy, so uh, I know we've talked a lot about that on the show in previous episodes. So she'll talk more about that. And she currently holds seven units, and she's continuing to scale, and I'll speak off the cuff here. I know she's doing a little leveraging of her own position here and kind of the knowledge she gains here into her own personal investing. So uh, kind of really cool and and unique position she's in and excited to talk to her about it.
0: Megan, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, guys. Happy to be here.
0: Thanks for joining. Uh, Megan, if you wouldn't mind, can you just give like a quick summary background, 60-second elevator pitch, whatever you want to call it for the listeners?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I started becoming interested in real estate a couple years ago what really got me interested was I love being able to fix things and, you know, do projects and the architecture of real estate and just taking something like a distressed home and turning it into something beautiful. So I started off in tech sales and I absolutely hated it. And me and one of my partners now today would sit at our job every day and talk about real estate instead, would be Browsing Zillow, kind of trying to figure out like, how do we get into real estate? So, as I started to do more research, um, listening to bigger pockets, like all good real estate investors, uh, one of the things that they had said was to be a good underwriter. So, I wanted my personal goals and my professional goals to align there. So, I started looking for jobs that I could an underwriter as, as as looking at property values and getting that full experience so i started perusing on linkedin and found some common connections with fund that flip one being uh, Maria on the underwriting team. So I reached out, got a little bit more information, and it seemed like a great fit. So I applied and joined Fund That Flip in 2021. And around the same time, I purchased my first property, which was a duplex in the Tremont area of Cleveland, which I did a house hack in. So being at Fund That Flip has provided me so many resources and so much knowledge where I've been able to buy a couple more properties, you know, since I've been here, which has been really exciting. And I've, I've absolutely loved that my professional and personal goals have been able to combine like that in a way.
0: Yeah, th- this is awesome. Dugan, I feel like we've talked about this a couple times on the podcast about how the core of employees that fund that flip, a lot of them were either interested in real estate before joining or like shortly after joining, they start to see an acceleration in that interest and start to do more and more you know, my situation is pretty similar, Megan, when I started from that flip, I had two or three units, I joined as an underwriter, learned more and more about the business, I was around, you know, our borrowers who just have a wide variety of skill sets and different different strategies that they deploy, and then slowly started to use that as motivation to kind of build up the the portfolio over time. I think I think one thing that would be interesting, just as a starting point, underwriting is often this just like scary black box that most people don't really understand, right? So like, Anyone that's ever went and got a conventional home mortgage, when something goes to underwriting, you're just, you know, kind of fingers crossed, hoping that thing gets spit out the other side and, and you're in good shape and you're on the path to closing. I think in the hard money space, it's a little bit different. I'd be curious just to get your take. What is an underwriter? What do you do and, and what's the most important piece about your role?
2: Yeah, good question. So an underwriter is basically that first level Or that first stop of the loan to make sure that we're mitigating all of the risk of the project. So when a deal comes in, we're first looking at every single piece of that deal, not just the asset itself, but we're looking at the borrower as well. We want to understand the full story of what's going on. So a lot of the times when a deal comes across my desk, I want to familiarize myself with the market first, understand Where is this asset? What kind of asset is it? Are we talking about single family, multifamily? And then we start to kind of get into some of the more nitty gritty details of, you know, we want to know. What are properties that are of the same asset class selling for in that market? So we start looking at comparable sales and trying to decide, you know, what is our property going to be worth after it's rehab, right? So now we start talking ARV. We're looking at the scope of work, making sure that everything makes sense, that the scope is feasible to what the borrower wants to do. So those are the couple of things that we start doing on the asset side. From the borrower perspective, we want to know, is this going to be a good borrower for us so we start looking at things like credit score we mentioned asset statements we want to make sure that they're liquid enough to be doing this deal we look at you know background making sure that you know nothing on there is a risk to us along that you know biggest driver for us is experience what have you done before and can we feel comfortable that you're doing this project because you've proven that before to us yeah
0: I'll sneak one more question here, Dave, and then I'll I'll let you jump in here. The experience piece is super interesting, right? And if if I'm a listener and I'm like, well, hey, I have experience, right? I've GC'd a few bathroom remodels. I've done a few wholesale deals. Dive into the experience side a little bit, Meg, because I think to your point that is the way that we de-risk the loan the greatest of our borrower's ability to execute the value add that they're anticipating to do in that project. So um, what are some tall tale signs of, hey, the experience is going to verify and we have a high degree of confidence, and maybe some other experience types that are a little bit different from that first example?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And one size does not fit all here. There's a number of different quote-unquote experiences that you could have for us to get comfortable with a project first and foremost the best one is a settlement statement that has your name on it or your business name on it that ties to you we can see when you bought it we can see when you sold it and if in between that time we see a significant increase in the price there's a pretty good chance that you did some kind of value add work to it um on top of that, you know, we also look at JV agreements. Maybe you're not the one on the HUD, but maybe you were somewhat part of that agreement or part of that project. So that's another good one. GC agreements, maybe, again, you're not the one who's going to be on the HUD, but you're the one who's actually doing the work. You're the experienced partner in this case. So keeping really good track of the the contracts that you make with other people, especially if you are that GC. Make sure you document it out. Get someone to sign and date it. So then when you do want to go get a loan and someone's asking for your experience, you could produce all these contracts and say, hey, yeah, look how experienced I am. I've got all these contracts. We can start getting into some other types of things. If you've got photo proof of of you doing a project before and after pictures, that starts to get a little bit hairier. Um, Real estate agent experience. I count that you know, when I'm looking at a loan, like we said, we want to understand the bigger picture of our borrower in the deals. Maybe you're a wholesaler, real estate agent. There's a whole bunch of different things and roles you could be in the real estate world that add value to your bor- borrower profile. So it's not always just that HUD. Those are the strongest. But again, there's, there's a million different things that we could look at.
1: The Real Estate Investing Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Flipper Force. Tired of using spreadsheets to manage your projects? Looking for a system to consistently track your deals? FlipperForce is an all-in-one platform that helps real estate investors successfully run their businesses. Whether you're working on rehabs, new construction, or rentals, FlipperForce has the tools you need to analyze deals, estimate rehab costs, create project schedules, and track project expenses easily and on the go. Sign up for a free trial at FlipperForce.com today. That's FlipperForce.com. Yeah, to me, the, the experience piece was always like the giant band-aid that could kind of fix a lot of other bad things for borrowers, right? Absolutely. If your credit score is a little light, if your, the deal wasn't perfect, right? But like, if you have that experience, it shows you have the ability to execute. I think that fixes a lot of things. Megan, I would have almost all of our borrowers uh, at some point would ask me about the underwriting process, right? Like, what does it look like? How do I qualify? My answer to them was it's much more of an art than it is a science. (laughs) You you may disagree there, or you may agree. I I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, I would tell people, like, hey, no two files look the same. And honestly, like, very rarely do we ever see what I would consider as a perfect file, right? We always look at what what are some compensating factors that we look for right like what are some holes that we can plug in the deal that kind of make this file look more perfect can you touch on that just as what does a perfect file look like for you how often are you actually seeing a truly like perfect file that just skates right through underwriting without any additional questions and then like what are some you know, talk about compensating factors, if you could. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think you hit on a really good point there, that underwriting at Fund That Flip is more of an art than a science. And I think that's one of our huge value drivers, opposed to some of our competitors that are just putting your deal through a computer, spitting out either a yes or no. We're really taking the time to look at some of those little compensating factors and understanding, again, bigger picture of, you know, what can we do here and what can we understand to help this investor get this deal done? So, you know, Perfect files come along, I would say maybe one in 10 and and we're talking perfect file. I'm thinking, you know, 750 plus credit score, squeaky clean background. You've got 10 plus projects under your belt. Um you're you're doing maybe fix and flip in a really desirable market and your ARV is way higher cuz you bought the property low that is like a perfect file to me we know current market today not everyone's buying way under market and your ARVs aren't going to the ceiling anymore kind of just as a factor of the the depreciation of some house prices in the area but you know like i said maybe one in 10 on a perfect file we do have some really awesome repeat borrowers that have used us time and time again i would call those perfect files maybe they weren't extremely perfect on the front end, but they have done enough business with us where we kind of can take one look at a deal of theirs and know exactly what's going on. We know everything about them already. We know how much money they usually have coming in and out of their bank statement. So, you know, compensating factor, you want to talk, maybe you come to us with a deal, maybe it's mid month or closer to the end of the month, your bank accounts are running a little bit, a little low, but you've got a hefty rent roll that's coming in come the first. And we know that and you're able to produce those rents to us where we know that historically we've seen those come into your bank account every month i can get a lot more comfortable knowing that you have money coming in while on the topic of bank statements maybe a w-2 job maybe you're a a side flipper and you have a great w-2 or maybe one of your partners your wife your husband whatever has a great w-2 job we know that there's constant flow of money because liquidity could be everything in a project. We talk about experience, but if you've got a million dollars and no experience, we could probably find something to make it work. You can go find an experienced partner if you got the money for it. So just a couple couple little things there. Um, compensating on the experience, we kind of touched on these already, but it's not always just the HUDs. It's like, what else do you do in the real estate world that you could put on a piece of paper and get to the underwriting team so we can understand bigger picture? Um, and same with deals like. A lot lot of different ways we can look at things, a lot of different ways we can come at it to understand what's going on here and and how can we make this work, right? We kind of go back to the experience piece of, you know, you're really experienced and you bring us a deal that's not necessarily up the fairway, which I've seen quite a few from a lot of our repeat borrowers. They want to try a different strategy or they want to go bigger. They want to build something like that. We're more likely to take a look at those because of all of the different things that you had brought us before.
0: Yeah, and Megan, one thing you said that was that was interesting, right? Our our typical borrower, I mean, we have some that will do one deal, one deal a year. They're they're a weekend warrior. They're they're cranking out one deal a year and kind of building that that nest egg over time. Our typical borrower is more in the like, you know, 3 to 4 plus camp with some borrowers doing, you know, 30 40 a year. So, when it comes to a borrower that's repaid us on a deal, how how do you guys look at that? Because obviously that's a that's a gold star on the on the underwriting criteria, but how much does that repay deal mean to fund that flip and what kind of message does that send to not only the underwriting team, but also our capital partners that we work with?
2: Yeah, I think repaid deals are huge, um, especially depending on how many deals you have done before. That is definitely a whole level up in my opinion, because that showed that you are able to execute on the project that you said and exit. Exit is one of the most important things. A lot of people can go out there and do the work, do the construction, build a house, but can you exit the loan? Can you get out of it? Can you refi it? Can you sell it? Did your ARV build in some of the market changes that we're currently facing where if you sell, are you in the negatives or are you still in the positives? So to answer your question, that's that's everything to me. If I could see you exiting similar projects, A plus to me.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I think a lot of the borrowers' experience sheets that we get, there, there's no question about their ability to execute based on the paper trail, right? But to see the paper trail come to life and see them, you know, they're they're borrowing our money just like they would, you know, a private lender in town. And now that we're building that trust, that's really what it what it's doing, right? It's a trust builder with that borrower, where we're like, hey, we kind of we extended the olive branch on deal number one. You had you had good credit, you had good experience. But now you've proven that we can work together and have a sustainable relationship because you've paid us back and you made money in the process and it it just our it's our value prop from A to Z, right? Just kind of fully shown out.
2: Yeah, and you, you hit on something there that I think is really important to say is like these underwriting guidelines sound a little bit tough, right? You you say this to someone who wants to borrow money from us and they're probably sitting there and right now like, I don't know if I hit all those things. But the reason that we want to make sure, you know, you're a good borrower, that you're going to exit the deal is because when borrowers make money, that's how we make money as a business. You know, we want people to be exiting these deals profitably mm. so they come back over and over again. Again, because that's how we both grow together.
0: I want to dial in on something you said really quick. Because I think this is also something that's hopefully not unique to Fun That Flip, but I suspect that it might be. There's been multiple occasions where the underwriting team has underwritten a deal. They've they've looked at the profit margin. They said, Ah, man, like you know, we're coming at in or around where the borrower. Is expecting from an ARV standpoint. We have their cost basis, we have their purchase price, everything is accounted for. We have their interest rate, their soft costs, everything that goes into the profitability calculation. And, you know, Megan might reach out to me and say, Brendan, hey, the bar was only going to make two or three percent margin on this deal. Can you get this story from the bar of, of why? And there's been a couple occasions where we've gone back to the bar and they said, Man, like I didn't realize my margins were that compressed. Like, maybe I should look at this as a rental versus an outsell. And I think That conversation stems from underwriting, and it's what you said, Megan. It's your guys's willingness and commitment to not putting a borrower in a bad deal. So I I think that happens more times than not, David. I don't know if you've had experience on the same side with the underwriting team. Yeah, I mean, I on the sales side of the business, I always tried to get ahead of that. You mentioned
1: just a couple minutes ago, you know, kind of viewing it as lending our own money, and that's kind of how I always viewed it. Right? If somebody came to me and said, "I want to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to do a flip on this house," like. Instead of me saying, well, I'm just going to lend fun that flips money so it doesn't matter, like, let them figure it out, let Megan and her underwriting team do the thing. Like, I'm, I'm doing my own underwrite on the front end to make sure, like, if this was my money coming out of my own bank account, would I do this deal? And then, like, of course, if they repay it, then I feel better about doing the next deal versus, like, if they have a lot of challenges and kind of get sideways and they have to extend it three or four times, I'm less likely to lend that next time yes I agree with you on that piece and then I, I think you were asking about like multiple exit strategies right moving from a flip to a rental you know those are conversations I would have with borrowers as well and then of course with with Megan and her team on the underwriting side of like hey we, we've kind of got multiple strategies here and let's look at the data and see does it pencil out right like okay if the market stays where it's at and he hits kind of where some of these cops are in the neighborhood, to pretty decent ARV, he's going to make a good flip. Now let's sure. let's project worst case scenario. Market takes a dip, right? He's not going to reach these levels of comps, right? But he has some some good lending relationships where he you know, hey, he could put a tenant in here, he can rent it out, and you know, get some long term financing, and maybe it's it's a break even for a few years. But essentially, like he's buying himself time then, and he's still going to find a way to, to exit our deal and it's still going to be a successful investment for him. It just may take more time to see that success. So yeah, I'd be having conversations on both sides with both our borrower and underwriting team about
0: that to get everybody in a good spot. For sure. Megan, if we can, I'd like to transition a little bit from the underwriting conversation to your new role in somewhat of a newer department within Fund That Flip, the construction risk team. So can you just dive in a little bit more? What does that construction risk team look like? What's your role? And and also, why why did Fund That Flip make the decision to have the department structure the way that it is today?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's important here to start with the why. Like, Why did Fund That Flip create this department? And to answer that is we kind of look back at what's going on in the market right now. It's no secret. You know, markets kind of trending in the downward direction. Interest rates are up properties are are falling in value a little bit depends on the market you're in so one of the things that we wanted to do is at, um, at fund that flip is we wanted to be proactive to make sure we had a really good hold around our current book and the projects that we're currently holding on the book uh, so when we created this department the idea was to make sure that we're consistently mitigating risk of these projects making sure we have full visibility into what's going on, what's going to happen, when they're going to exit, not just for us, but for, you know, all the stakeholders that have part in the loan, capital partners, borrowers, and internal people that fund that flip, right? So I should be able to, you know, message to finance something similar to sales to make sure we're all on the same page. So that's kind of the why. We wanted to create this visibility within the company to make sure that we have a great hold on what's going on and that we're still mitigating risk the same way. So I got asked, you know, a couple months back if I would be interested in the position. Uh, I was in the underwriting department doing a lot of property value on the front end. And, you know, John and Val approached me and said, would you be interested in this? So I thought about it a lot. And I had never really worked with our draw process before was was a little bit hesitant at first just to, to step into a new role. But I've kind of found in my life in general, you know, life is kind of lived outside the comfort zone. And so I, I talked to a couple people and got really excited about it and, you know, dove headfirst into this construction risk world. So what that looks like on a day to day is primarily handling our draw process. Borrowers will call up on that flip or our account management team and say, hey, looking for a draw. We go send them a report, that report comes in, and that's where my team comes in, is we're reviewing that report, making sure that everything around the borrower, around the deal, similar to underwriting, with a little bit of different guidelines is is still it within our risk appetite. So making sure that the money that they're requesting for that draw is in line with the work that's completed, making sure that they're not late on any of their interest payments. I like to look at borrowers from a book perspective. How many loans do they have with Fund That Flip? Are they late on any of those? We don't necessarily hold draws if they're late on another loan, but it's good perspective. And, and from a risk standpoint and from a leverage standpoint, we could usually have that conversation of, you know, hey hey, I've got a draw for you for 123 Main Street. You're late on 456 Main Street. Like, what can we help you there to get this up to date? And then we'll get you that draw money.
1: First of all, thank you for the, the synopsis on the new role. I think it's a great thing for the company. I have more perspective on it, I'm sure, than this, some of our listeners mm-hmm. do. So for those listeners, right, I think I think the value to the stakeholder in that position is obvious, right? You're adding more protection to them and to the loan, Right. But there's also some benefits for our borrowers here, right? And and, and I think that's kind of what goes unnoticed in some of these changes we're making. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
2: definitely. And I think that was actually one of the main changes is we want to make sure we're providing our borrowers with extraordinary experiences. And the way we do that in the construction risk team is with speed. Borrowers would like their money and their draws and they want them fast. So one of the things that I'm currently working on within this role is seeing how we can change and tweak our current processes to make sure that we can move as fast as possible while still mitigating that risk in an appropriate fashion. So, for example, you know, we're looking at maybe some different service providers that allow borrowers to take pictures themselves instead of an inspector and you know, that's not set in stone yet, but looking at things like that, how can we move faster to provide more value to the borrowers? And I think that's maybe something borrowers are missing, maybe on the front end right now, they are just experiencing the change. It's a pain point. I've felt it, they have felt it, but I do hope that they understand. And I hope that our, our sales team is really communicating that this is for them. And we're trying to bring them as much value as possible to make sure that they become repeat borrowers and that they have great experiences with us.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Megan. And I think in addition to the speed, um, you know, our, our prior process, we we leaned pretty heavily into that third-party inspection report. we still do today, right? That's what your team reviews and what they ultimately make their decision off of. So while we're protecting risk from sending a draw that is overstated from what was actually complete, we're also doing the opposite. We're making sure that the inspector didn't shortchange the borrower, right? Of like, you know, maybe they checked the 10 line items, but they missed one. Maybe they forgot to go in the basement, they forgot to go into the uh, the second floor, something, and they didn't. They didn't mark an area complete. That's where your team comes in and is verifying. Like, hey, I think this was missed, or we should tweak this. The point is, the borrower and the investors in the deal should should understand that the most accurate amount is going out each time, which I think is beneficial in both directions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's sometimes things that investor or I'm sorry, inspectors can't see when they get on site. Right, I'm talking plans, permits, maybe some utilities underground. And just because they can't see them doesn't mean it's not there. So that's kind of where my team comes in and we can keep that line of communication open and say, hey, you know, you've got foundation and some of your framing done. I don't think that the inspector marks you for plans and permits, but I'm pretty sure you got those if you got a foundation down, right? So let's get that to the right place to make sure you're getting the funds that you need on this draw.
0: Yeah. And speak a little bit about the importance of like velocity of cash for the borrower too right so like obviously just from a principal standpoint they're entitled to the to the draw funds once they complete the work and and you know that helps them run their business but like what would happen if we if we didn't execute on that uh extraordinary experience for the borrower what kind of pain does that cause them if we don't dugan you probably know a lot about this
2: yeah i mean these people need these funds to keep their businesses going we talked about you know, some people are doing this full time. So they're fronting their own personal money to get these projects to the right spot. So if we're not getting them their money in a timely fashion, like that affects them as people, their business, their their personal lives. Right. And we have to have a lot of empathy for these people because we understand that, like, this is their entire livelihood. And so I have a lot of empathy to make sure that we're serving these people the way we should, because like I said, like this is their entire livelihood.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I think I think there's a chain reaction too that's that's very very fragile, but it's again what we built our business around of Megan, you run projects on the side, you have you have seven units, you've had to G C your own projects before. I mean, if you're if your plumber that you've built a relationship with over the last two years is saying, Megan, I need paid Friday and if I'm not paid Friday, I'm going over to Dugan's job. And if I go to Dugan's job, he might treat me better than you are, and I might not come back, right? Like there's always there's always that chance when you have subcontractor and GC relationships so fund that flip kind of plays a critical piece in that somewhat fragile relationship between the borrower and the sub of if we we do what we can to make sure that the borrower can deliver on their payment promises to their subs because that is their ecosystem that allows them to run their business profitably uh, and in a scalable way absolutely yeah I,
1: luckily we are we're, we're pretty damn good at the draw stuff and and taking some actions to get better at it. Um, so I don't get too many calls about it, but you know, every now and then there was that phone call from a really, really stressed-out borrower of like, I need my money like today, right? And Like, well, you just ordered the draw yesterday, so like, you'll, you'll get it, and like it'll be quick. But yeah, they they run tight, right? It's uh, a lot of our our borrowers are in the the risk business as well, right? They are they have a, a high risk appetite, and so you know that often means running lean on cash and, and kind of maxing out credit lines and, and doing whatever they have to do you know pulling money from personal bank accounts to kind of keep that machine going so yeah the the draw stuff is huge and, and for the people that are are newer to the space and getting into it like I, I think they start to realize the importance of draws once they're they're kind of due for that first one so uh, to megan's point earlier i think it is important to show them a, an extraordinary experience because if
0: if you don't then it's Nightmares, right? Yeah. 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 Megan, I know we have uh we have a few minutes left here. I was I was hoping that we could transition into a little bit of a conversation. You talked about how you have a tremendous amount of empathy for our borrowers, and I feel like that empathy from you comes specifically from your experience personally as an investor. Give Dugan and I a peek behind the curtain of like Either your most memorable deal, your favorite deal, your most challenging deal. Give us a peek behind the curtain of what that looks like.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I'll kind of wrap all three of those things you said into the one deal that comes to mind. So this was a deal that I just did this year. I acquired a property in around, what was it, May, June time, and it was a triplex in the Lakewood area of Cleveland. Our plan was to actually flip this one. Some of the other properties that I acquired before, I did some kind of house hacking, very minor rehabs that I was doing myself, like a a coat of paint or like a fix here, there. Nothing that was a serious rehab. So this triplex, we planned to do a rehab. We were going to go get some hard bunny, have them fund a lot of it so we could put as little – of our own money into it as possible. So this was my favorite because I actually got to see this house that I fell in love with. Like the second we went into it kind of turn into this amazing like project that we had envisioned from the start. So we, we redid, paint floors kitchen bathrooms the whole nine yards there so that was really really exciting and i loved watching the development of that um it was a little bit stressful at times right this was my first time so there was obviously Mm. mistakes to be made and and one of my biggest struggles with this project was with the gc and this was a little bit on him a little bit on me so just from the start, not a lot of great expectations were set. We never made a contract. This was all done over the phone, via text. He kind of gave us a quote. I think he did everything. He wrote everything down. He did nothing over the computer. So even mm. his punch lists were handwritten. Nice. So a little bit hard to, to read his handwriting as well. So we did a lot of this back and forth, which I think annoyed him a little bit. He wanted us to be more hands-off. We were nervous because it was our first project. So we had all this back and forth, and then we paid paid him the last paycheck when we were going through some of the the parts of the house that still needed to be done, which was a little bit of a mistake on my part. I should have held some of those funds. But the next day, he ghosted us, and there were still a couple of things on the punch list, less to do. Very minor yeah. type things, but, like, things that needed to be done in order for us to get the house rented because our strategy here was to rehab, to rent, and refinance, right? We were talking about Burr before. So, you know, I... I'm coming up to the end of my project. I want to refinance soon. I want to get tenants in there as soon as possible to to stop the the bleeding costs, right? And my contractor won't answer me anymore. I'm calling him. Mm. I'm texting him. I work with a partner. We do 50-50 on everything. She's calling him, texting him. And we're just kind of at a loss of like, what do we do? We've paid this guy. He's not coming back. So in this situation, we had to roll up our sleeves and start doing some of the little things. So patching drywall here and there, making sure it looks good. Some of the trim needed fixed and just like... Putting some of the small finishes to to make it look rent ready were were the headaches that we had to go through. And what I learned from this experience is on the front end, make sure you're writing down your contracts of, you know, even if it's small, I don't, maybe you use a lawyer, maybe you don't. Like a contract is a contract and at least it's something to hold each other accountable. So I could say, you know, this contractor is going to work on this project for this amount, and until its entirety or something like that. And you can kind of get deeper into those depending on the level of complexity of your project. But that was kind of the first mistake. And then we had a pretty good experience refiing. We used a broker someone out of michigan i think and and we must have caught the rates right before they kind of took a huge jump because we got a four nine rate on our triplex we were able to build enough equity in where we came with no money to close we didn't season it which is another mistake that i might consider right so we weren't actually able to pull any money out because we didn't hold for six Mm -hmm. months we did the project in four so we built all that equity in but we didn't actually pull any of it out so it, it was and bad right um different ways we can think about it
0: yeah kind of a catch 22 in a way because if you waited the other two months to season your rates would have been higher right and and there's obviously the argument of if you have the cash in your pocket you can reinvest that and obviously get your return but um yeah that's that's super interesting Megan I'm curious just high level deal breakdown what was the purchase price construction budget and then would you guys end up landing on the ARV
2: yeah so we bought the house for 240 we put 40,000 into it and we got it appraised arv at 361. Oh wow. And so where that not seasoning kind of helped us a little bit or it didn't help but where where we kind of got away with it is that 40k budget that we accounted for we only used about 27 of it. But when we were taking our draws, right, if you know hard money, you still get your full draw. So we were able to pull a little bit of money out of each draw because we weren't dipping into the contingency the way we thought we would. And we did a lot of the things by ourselves, which I don't know if I'll do again. I think I'd rather pay people to do the labor, but we saved a lot of money, right? So then we did walk away from that deal, pulling a little bit of our money out. We had a private investor that was part of it. So we were able to pay them off without really coming out of pocket at all.
1: Yeah, that's... Uh... Hey, I'm curious as you continue to scale, Megan, because I know, I know you're not planning to slow down. Are you going to stick with the Burr strategy or are you planning to pivot with kind of changing markets? Like what's your plan moving forward?
2: Yeah, I think Cleveland is still a great place for rental market. I, I think I saw a statistic today that the home prices have only really dropped like three, three and a half percent from the peak in 2022. So there's still a lot of a lot of equity to be have in this market. I think I'm going to stick with the burst strategy. I am experimenting right now, which I'm a little nervous about, but I'm turning one of the units from that triplex I'm talking about into a midterm rental. So we're going to be targeting, you know, traveling nurses because we've got such a hospital heavy industry in Cleveland, families that are in between leases or buying a house and they need to stay there. So we've got a 2-1 in that duplex that we're going to Try the midterm rental. So right now we had a tenant move out at the end of November. We're fully furnishing it, doing uh, some similar type flips, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna rent that out and see how that does. And the reason we're doing that is because the cash flow is significantly increased when you do midterm. So that that unit I'm talking about, we can maybe get 1,100 in rent on a long term, but closer to 15 in the short term or the midterm game. So we're increasing our cash flow by what two, three hundred dollars. So that that's kind of what we're doing now. I do like the Burr strategy. Like I said, the the long term rentals I think are are really popular, especially in that west side of Cleveland. A lot of young people want to move there. People love the Lakewood, Tremont, Ohio City areas. Oh, yeah. So I'm gonna to continue to target those, see when I could buy under the market and, you know, build enough equity in my flips and rehabs to to make sure that we can keep cruising and scaling.
0: I've heard of a lot of people kind of doing that strategy, Megan, with multifamily in Cleveland. Well, they'll, they'll kind of hedge their bets. Will they do a long-term on one unit and either an Airbnb or a midterm on the other unit? And just, just for the listeners to click into the, the midterm very quickly. So that is, I'm, I'm asking, so that's essentially anything between like a 30-day up to about a six-month term, right? Somewhere around there. And it's typically less headache than an Airbnb just because there's less turnover, there's less cleaning. Slightly more turnover than a long-term rental, obviously, but your your gross profit somewhere right in the middle. So depending on what your individual strategy is, if you're not looking to have to do the hospitality management that an Airbnb requires or hire a manager to do it, midterms like that nice in the middle area where you can maximize your, your gross profit with doing a more moderate amount of turnover.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're still property managing ourselves. So we we get all the fun of that. And I think it's a little bit of a combination of both where you get... A little bit more turnover, a little bit more hands on, but you can still kind of step away and I would love to get like six month type leases in there. So then it's it's almost the same as a, a long term.
1: Yeah, please report back on the, the midterm rental because I'm really curious about it. And I've got to imagine there's a, a high demand for it here in Cleveland and in many markets, right? Because I think everybody goes toward either long-term or short-term, yeah. and I think they forget about that that kind of midterm space. So yeah. um, I'd love to hear how it goes. Absolutely. One, one more question for sure. you uh, along the lines of the BRRRR strategy, right? So, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people are full steam ahead into it. Some people are backing off of it, just given interest rates. But I still think that the people that are full steam ahead into it, they're like, I don't want to leave any money in it. I still got to hit these cash flow returns of X, right? And they're pretty aggressive. My thought is like, burst strategy still works, right? I I think it's – personally, I think it's it's a smart strategy. But you should expect maybe to leave a little money in the deal or maybe not the cash flow as heavily now. Like, what's your take there? Like, what are, what are you preparing to do? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And And to be completely honest, the interest rates don't scare me. We were – We had the luxury of super low interest rates, but those weren't the norm. So people are waiting for the norm to come back, but we're still kind of in a a good spot with them and there's still really good deals out there. You just have to buy right, right? That's where it starts is make sure you're buying your property right and your numbers work. And on top of that, I try to make sure that I have at least three exit strategies because I know how volatile the market is. If I plan to do a fix and flip and sell it, but all of a sudden prices in in Cleveland start to come way down, I want to know that my numbers work well enough that I can do a rental. And if I can't do that rental, you know, can I do the midterm? Can I do the short term so i try to look at things from those three different perspectives because again i know how volatile the market is and i want to make sure i position myself in the best place because i'm not slowing down i'm going to keep doing deals i know there's still good deals out there when you're underwriting best base worst case of your arv and that's how i set myself up for success that's why you're the best
0: Megan, thanks uh thanks for joining us today. And for for the listeners, where can people reach out to you, learn more about you? Um, Instagram, email, whatever you want to drop, drop it now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you can reach me via email if you have any questions or just wanna connect. Also reach me on LinkedIn. So Megan M E G A N dot s a r l e s at fund that flip and find me on linkedin the same way megan Sorrels and and connect i'd love to talk to people see what other people are doing in cleveland projects talk about real estate it's a a huge passion of mine and i love seeing people around me do the same thing
1: awesome thanks again megan i will go ahead and sign us off so for brendan bennett for our wonderful guest megan Sorrels, i'm david dugan this is real estate investing unscripted thanks for tuning in guys This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fund That Flip and produced by Converso. Fund That Flip is here for real estate investors all over the U.S. We are the premier hard money lender connecting active investors to passive ones through crowdfunded loans in order to make real estate investing accessible to everyone. We believe providing transparency into our process, as well as research and resources for investors at every stage, we can open up the world of REI to more people and help small businesses everywhere transform their communities and make an impact on their neighborhoods. Learn more at fundthatflip.com. Make sure to rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube.